The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host, and today I'm delighted to be joined by my good friend Dr Peter Hammond, so let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I am, thank you so much Andrew. Thank you so much Peter, and um, folks, uh, I apologise to those of you who have been used to Peter going out on a Thursday. We were toying with the idea of going out on a Tuesday, and sometimes I put him out on a Wednesday. Thursday has always worked historically, so for the sake of consistency, we're going to start going out on the Thursday each week, unless, of course, there's a, an anniversary and want to do a show on a certain day, for example. Um, I'll give you an example straight away. This year, Christmas Day is on the Sunday. So that is when we will be broadcasting Peter's Christmas message. That is our plan. Uh, And that might be an extra show or it might be moved to that day that week, depending on Peter's schedule. So that being said, I just want to let you all know, look out on Thursdays. That's when we're planning to put Peter's show out. So today, Peter has got a very timely message for us entitled The Real Story of Gun Control and the Threat to Freedom. Peter, where would you like to start us off today with this topic? Well, we know that the mainstream, lamestream media or disinformation, distraction industry are at the moment screaming for more gun confiscations. Interesting that they never want a tragedy to go without it being exploited for some kind of political agenda, which are always counterproductive. If they really want to save lives, they would not be going the path of gun control, and we'll we'll prove why. Uh, But it's interesting how they often ignore the wider context of anything, such as the amount of these school shooters and mass murderers who get out there and murder a whole lot of people. How many of them virtually all of them, are on some kind of mind-altering drugs. And uh, interesting how many of them were noticed and warned about and, in fact, gave lots of warning on social media and amongst their friends that they planned to do these very things and how police often ignored or released these people or refused to investigate the cases. And it's extraordinary how many other factors are uh, involved in so many of these issues. But the leftist liberal Marxist, socialist, totalitarian, globalist crowd, they continually seem to want to only have one thing, you know, blame the tool, blame the weapon. It's a cold, inanimate metal object's fault. And uh, uh, they don't look at crime control. They want gun control. But to limit a person's access to 
lethal weapons is to limit its ability for self-defense and, and family defense. Gun control interferes with our basic right and our basic responsibility for self-defense and family defense. Ultimately, gun control can deprive you of your right to life. So the right of citizens to use force to defend themselves is a great deterrent to hijackers, rapists, murderers, terrorists, jihadists. Those who choose not to have weapons like firearms still benefit from those who do. If only one in 20 people are armed, it still acts as a restraint, a deterrent on potential attackers because they do not know, they're not certain who's armed and who isn't. So the deterrent value of armed citizens against crime cannot be overestimated. Nehemiah 4 verse 14 says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And from these and many other passages of Scripture, including in Numbers 32 and Judges 5, 8 and 1 Samuel 13, we see that a man is responsible to be armed and a man is responsible to be trained and prepared to protect his household. Proverbs 25 verse 26 a righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring and a polluted well. Well, I know from firsthand the deadly deceptions of pacifism. When these basic scriptural principles are ignored, the results can be tragic. You know that I was raised in Rhodesia, what today's communist Zimbabwe. Well, um, the Christians in the Elam mission station in Rhodesia were convinced pacifists. They were English, Pentecostal, pacifist missionaries, and the Elam Mission Station was just a few kilometers, I think only four kilometers from communist Mozambique during a vicious war. And these Elam missionaries from Britain refused to be armed. They had neither fence nor dogs to protect them. They refused to allow the Rhodesian Security Force to station some guards for their protection on the school grounds. And when communist terrorists, ZANU communist terrorists of Robert Mugabe's crowd, when they visited Elam Mission Station, the missionaries always welcomed them, provide them with food, medical supplies, and were generally friendly, obviously believing that this would be a protection for them in the time of war. Well, on one fateful night in 1978, Zahn Terrorist, under the direct authority and under his express orders of Robert Mugabe, who later became dictator of Zimbabwe, these Zahn Terrorists came onto the Elam Mission Station, herded the nine missionaries and their four children onto one of the fields and I've been to this mission station, I've been on the fields, take my children to the very place where it happened. In front of the parents, they hacked the children to death, all four children, including a baby who's just a few weeks old, throwing it up and down on bayonets. Then in front of the husbands, they raped and tortured the woman to death. Finally, they brutally murdered the men. Yet so effectively had the pacifist beliefs neutralized these missionaries that there was no attempt at resistance. The men literally stood by and watched ruthless terrorists abuse and butcher their loved ones. Now, nine years later, 1987, a similar massacre took place at New Adams Farm in Zimbabwe. Sixteen precious Christians, lovely people, not far from where I was brought up in Bulawayo, their sincere belief in pacifism disarmed these 16 precious Christians made them helpless victims to a frightful slaughter, all murdered by Marxist terrorists. Now, those aren't the only examples. Rwanda was a gun-free zone. On the 6th of April, 1994, one of the most dreadful campaigns of mass murder was unleashed upon the Tutsi people of Rwanda, a minority tribe. In just over six weeks, more people were killed with machetes and clubs 
than have died from atomic weapons in all of history. I mean, just think about that. In six weeks, just with machetes, a low-tech genocide, well over 800,000 Christians were murdered. Uh, it now seems that numbers were more like 1.1 million, according to the Holocaust Museum in uh, Kigali in Rwanda, which I've been to. Uh, they've got the names of over 1,100 100, sorry, 1,100,000 uh, Tutsi Christians murdered during the genocide in Rwanda, most of them in the first six weeks. And we're talking about with machetes. The confiscation of weapons made Damascus possible by disarming the targeted victims. And the United Nations played a key role in disarming the people of Rwanda and therefore enabling the genocide in Rwanda. The confiscation of weapons made Damascus possible because the victims were disarmed, and the Holocaust in Rwanda again confirmed that limiting the ability of law-abiding citizens to defend themselves and their families is an open invitation to criminals to attack the innocent. Criminals prefer disarmed victims, obviously. Well, the genocide perpetrated in the 20th century, such as upon the Christian Armenians in Ottoman Turkey, and upon the Syrian Christians and the Greek Christians in Ottoman Turkish Empire, something in the region of 3 million Christians killed uh, between 1915 and 1917. They were preceded by gun control, gun registration first, and gun control, and then gun confiscation by the Turkish Ottoman Empire. And the massacres of the Christian farmers, the Kulaks in the Soviet Union, from 1919 to 1953, they were preceded by gun control and gun confiscation. Something like 11 million Ukrainian and Russian farmers were murdered in the 1930s and 1920s under Lenin first and then Stalin. The massacres against Christians in Red China from 1949 to 1976 was preceded by gun confiscation. And the massacres under Idi Amin in Uganda from 1971 to 1979, the Ugandan Holocaust, hundreds of thousands of Christians murdered. It was preceded by gun control and gun confiscation. And then the targeting of educated people in Cambodia by Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, 1975 to 1979, preceded by gun control legislation, which effectively disarmed the targeted victims. So a gun-free sticker would not have helped these people because the greatest threat to life is not from firearm accidents. The greatest threat to life isn't even from criminals. The greatest killer in the 20th century has not even been wars. The greatest killer in the 20th century has been secular governments, socialist governments, communist governments, which have disarmed their own citizens. Approximately 160 million people have been killed by their own governments in over 40 communist states just in the 20th century alone. And if you doubt this, you need to read Death by Government, uh, written by Professor R.J. Rummel, or The Black Book of Communism, written by six ex-communists, including the editor of Communism magazine in France, uh, documented just from the communists' own files, their own archives and records, over 160 million people killed by their own governments in over 40 communist states just in 20th century alone. These are not foreigners killed by uh, an invading army. These are citizens killed by their own governments in cold blood after that first disarmed them. And so gun control deprives potential victims of their best means of protection. A free people need to be armed. Disarmed people can be easily exploited and oppressed. If a government does not trust its citizens with weapons, then the citizens cannot trust that government with power. 
a government that fears its people is itself to be feared. No government should ever have a monopoly of force or weapons. And that is for sure. We know that competition is good. Margaret Thatcher pointed out that competition is good in the economy and competition is also good uh, when it comes to education and it's also good when it comes to weapons. You don't want anyone to have a monopoly on weapons. So English legal tradition has always recognized the right of free citizens to possess and carry weapons for self-defense. King Alfred the Great in the ninth century laid the foundation for English law, the common law, with the Ten Commands of Exodus 20 forming the preamble for the laws, and then the case laws of Exodus, and then the Sermon on the Mount. And while abuses such as disturbing a meeting by drawing a sword without any reason were prohibited, the basic right to bear arms was entrenched in the dooms of King Alfred and the laws of Canute. In the 11th century, King Canute declared self-defense to not only be a right, but a duty. Those who failed to assist a person under attack were to be fined. Similarly, anyone who illegally disarmed a man was to be fined. Magna Carta of 1215, the first written restriction on the powers of government, the grandfather of all bills of rights, the first statute guaranteeing the rights of all free men to bear arms. And so Magna Carta, which every British monarch has to swear to rule in accordance with and in accordance with the laws of God and the gospel of Christ. But Magna Carta is a binding on all British monarchs for all time and their descendants. Magna Carta guarantees the right of all free men to bear arms. So by definition, if one isn't allowed to bear arms, one is not free. The English Declaration of Rights of 1689 recognized the right to have and use arms for self-preservation and defense. And this was specifically spelled out, including firearms. So English Bill of Rights of 1689, endorsed by Queen Mary and King William, entrenched the rights of of keeping and bearing arms, and this was ratified by the House of Parliament and the House of Lords combined. Other free states have also entrenched this right to obtain, to own, to carry, to use weapons for self-defense, including in the United States of America's Bill of Rights. Now, if these foundational principles for uh, freedom seem extreme, then just consider the recent examples of the genocides in Rwanda, Cambodia, Vietnam, Red China, the phenomenal massacres that took place in Soviet Union, 66 million people, mostly Christians, killed under the Soviet Union in the 20th century. Now, if you want peace, you need to prepare for war. That is the Swiss strategy for survival. Peace is achieved through superior firepower. This sums up the Swiss attitude towards peace and freedom. In the land of William Tell, and Ulrich Zwingli and William Farrell and John Calvin, with its deep distrust of central governments, its abiding love for God's word and for life and liberty, Switzerland remains a bastion of freedom through armed neutrality. Shooting festivals became the most important unifying activities in the Swiss communities. In fact, you go to Switzerland, which I've done numerous occasions, one of my favorite countries in the world, on Saturdays, the hills are alive with the sound of gunfire. And a shooting is the national sport, and it's even on their postage stamps, a target shooting. It, Switzerland's always had a very high level of military preparedness, and they're a nation of sharpshooters on skis, and this has been a very effective deterrent to would-be aggressors. If you think of the First and Second World War, where millions of Frenchmen and Germans and Italians were killing one another with great efficiency, 
uh, Switzerland, with a large German, French, and Italian population, remained an island of sanity in a sea of insanity, an island of peace in a continent at war. And it's not that the neighbors didn't want to invade Switzerland. In fact, all its neighbors at different times had good reason to want to violate its its um, territorial integrity. And they were, for example, the French were planning to attack across the what they call the Geneva Gap, uh, because uh, to get behind the Maginot uh, line of France and the uh, Siegfried line of Germany uh, going through Switzerland would have been very convenient. And there were threats and attempts to do this, and Switzerland made clear they would defend their territory, and they, they did. Uh, later on the war, there was um, desire of Germany to be able to supply their forces in Italy, and the most convenient would be through Switzerland, which was not possible. When Germany was to be invaded, the Americans and British wanted to go through Switzerland to get into Germany. And the Swiss during the Second World War and the First, they had times where they had artillery duels where they shot down enemy aircraft that had violated their airspace. Uh, they, in fact, imprisoned thousands. It ended up with uh, well over 10,000 um, foreign airmen and others who had uh, strayed into the territory. And they, they treat them well, but they were still uh, interned for the duration of the war. And uh, Switzerland was involved in dogfights, uh, shot down other aircraft. They were involved in artillery duels. They were involved in exchange of gunfire when others were testing uh, their sincerity of whether they defend their territory. So those people who say, you know, Switzerland's not fired a shot in 200 years, it's, <laughs> it's not true. Uh, Switzerland has defended themselves in armed neutrality. They haven't taken part in aggressive wars, but they have been very vigorous in defending their own territory. So... If firearms caused crime, Switzerland would be one of the most violent, lawless countries on the planet because every citizen has weapons of war stored in his home. When I've been visiting Switzerland, I've, I found this quite intriguing. So I was, I was in a mission station in Switzerland um, in a very nice, idyllic-looking paradise part of the Alps. And um, I looked across the table at a young man and I said, are you an army? And he laughed and said, of course, we're all in an army. Yeah, Switzerland doesn't have an army. Switzerland is an army. <laughs> And so I said, I believe you've got to be ready for war at short notice. He said, yes. So I said, how long would it take you to get ready? He said, I don't know. I said, can I time you? And he said, what now? Pulled out my watch and clicked it and said, yes, starting now. Well, five minutes, 20 seconds later, he was back, boots laced up in his uniform, um, weapon in hand, bayonet on, magazine in, uh, ready to lock and load. And um, impressive. Well, his sister got excited and pulled out a few other weapons. Brothers brought out other weapons. And before we knew it, we had a range, generations of weapons, you know, dating back to First World War, long rifles with long bayonets, uh, through to, uh, the, from bolt actions through to automatics. And there was, there was such a range. And this was not a house. This was a little apartment uh, in uh, Switzerland on a mission station. And they had anti-tank weapons. And they just pulled out a whole lot of uh, things that were in their home. And this makes you understand why, despite having millions of military-type rifles and a great many types of other weapons in private homes, overall firearm abuse in Switzerland is so low, low it's insignificant. Switzerland's got the lowest burglary and murder rates in the industrial world. Now, you've got to ask, if firearms cause violence, then how many mass murders take place in gun shops or on shooting ranges or on police stations where firearms abound? At the end of the Second World War, 1945, when tens of millions of soldiers returned to their homes, many of them with 
surplus weapons. For example, in South Africa, our government was selling three or three rifles for just two rand each, which was roughly a dollar. Um, so they were selling three or three rifles for a dollar. And that, that came with um, uh, not just boxes, but a crate of ammunition each. Uh, so to get rid of the weapons that were now um, um, out of date, now that we're going to automatic weapons, um, the FNs and so on. So they were just selling off to people these old 303 rifles, uh, some of which were Second World War, some of which were First World War vintage, but they were now considered um, uh, no longer needed for the army. They sold in population. Hundreds of thousands of captured souvenir weapons uh, came into the country. There was a sharp decline in violent crime in South Africa and Australia and New Zealand and Britain and America with all these weapons pouring in to countries with a whole lot of militarily trained people coming back from the wars and being demobilized. Now, you know, if weapons cause crime, you would have seen a spike in crime then, but actually saw a decrease because, you know, an armed society is a polite society. But later in 1960s, with the advent of the permissive society and as church attendance decreased, and with an explosion of the drug culture and the hippie revolution and the sexual revolution, Woodstock and all that, then violent crime increased. So plainly, it's not guns that cause crime. It's people in rebellion against the laws of God that cause crime and violence. We have in South Africa a group called Gun Free South African. They advocate a dream of a country where there are no guns. So I've been in their meetings and <laughs> debated them where they've said that if we would just ban guns, then the whole country would be at peace. And I had to say, well, the history books record that violence was prevalent prior to the invention of firearms in the 15th century. Attila the Hun managed to kill millions of people, and Genghis Khan even more, and Shaka Zulu managed to kill millions of people without firearms. I mean, the short-stabbing assegai of Shaka Zulu was very effective in the Mifikan, Difikan, which basically killed about 3 million people. In, in just a couple of years. So the blunt and sharp facts are these. Contrary to the impression created by the gun-free South Africa and other crowds, most murders in South Africa do not involve firearms. Knives and other sharp objects and clubs are used to murder more South Africans than firearms do. So should we ban all knives, sticks and rocks? The thing about a firearm is even a grandmother or somebody who is uh, sick and bedridden with a 38 special in the hand, it can stop some massive thug who spent his whole time when he is in prison uh, pumping iron and uh, might have massive biceps and so on. But, you know, uh, a firearm can be an equalizer for civilized people. Otherwise, when it goes back to the law of the jungle or um, the sort of caveman mentality of a hulking great big club. But all of this was demonstrated quite effectively during a TV debate I took part in with a judge. There was a judge who supported gun-free South Africa. We were invited to an interview, a debate at the ETV studios in Cape Town. And the judge, answering the question of how he got involved in supporting gun-free South Africa, said he'd been involved in dealing with a brutal baines Kloof murder some years before. It was a terrible, gruesome murder. And then he stopped for a moment and looked uh, at the ceiling and said, although it didn't actually involve firearms, in fact, he said, the terrible way in which they were suffocated in plastic bags made him wonder whether it wouldn't have been more merciful had they been murdered by firearms. Nevertheless, he realized something had to be done to outlaw firearms. And I said, you've just proved my point. Um, here's a murder where firearms weren't even part of it and using this as an excuse to, to ban firearms. And on another 
TV interview on South African Broadcasting Corporation. The big question was the name of the debate. I was debating Reverend Allen's story of country South African. When the interview asked me to justify my position, I quoted a whole number of scripture verses, which mandate self-defense and family defense. So the interviewer turned to Allen's story and said, well, Peter's quoted a number of Bible verses in support of his position. What verses from the Bible can you quote to support gun-free South Africa's position? Well, his reverend story spluttered and stammered and ended up saying, well, actually, there aren't any. And then he admitted, well, no, there aren't any. But not everything in the Bible is biblically said. And at this, the whole studio audience erupted and laughed. And he had, well, what I mean is not everything in the Bible is Christian. I was even more laughed. And I said, what kind of theology is this? Well, sometimes your opponents in a debate can destroy their own arguments more effectively than you can do yourself. Some people do use firearms for evil purposes, yes. But far more people use firearms for defensive purposes to prevent crimes from being committed. I mean, just think of, for example, how uh, someone like Justin Trudeau, the dictator of Canada, he wants to ban all firearms uh, in private hands, but he's surrounded by people with firearms protecting him. And he'll be surrounded by people with firearms protecting him for the rest of his life, I'm sure. And we know that that's true for Biden in America. He's surrounded by people with firearms. And, and all these dictators who want to strip people of their rights to self-defense, they're being more than hypocritical. They've got more than a double stand because they are surrounded by layers of security and their security people carry firearms, which are very efficient for defending yourself against an attack. Well, another time I was debating two gun-free South Africa advocates in Cape Town in a public meeting. And a Dr. Vanas of the Red Cross Children's Hospital called for tougher gun laws because he was sick and tired of treating children wounded and crippled by gunfire. Well, this is the first time I'd ever heard this argument. So in trying to understand the situation, I asked him, well, how many of these children are gang members or criminals that were shot by police or were shot in self-defense by victims of their crimes? And his answer was, all of them. <laughs> Uh, that makes a big difference. Um, these weren't children uh, being shot uh, by accident or something. These were gangsters and criminals, either being shot by the police or by the victims, um, uh, potential victims in self-defense. So I went to Red Cross Hospital, and I, um, which is not far from my home, and I got their papers, and I found out only four patients a month at Red Cross Children's Hospital were gunshot victims. And almost all of those were from illegal guns in the hands of gangsters, and numerous of the patients were actually gang members themselves. So when we're talking about children, we're talking about 15, 16, 17-year-olds. Uh, in fact, they take even up to 18-year-olds and they call them children. But as we know, uh, in like the Rwandan genocide, the, the uh, Holocaust was perpetrated by everything from 13, 14, 15-year-olds. Uh, into Hamburg is mostly young teenagers. And uh, it's not like gangsters don't have murderers amongst them who are in their teens. So it was a bit dishonest to speak about children uh, being victims of gunshots when many of them were actually gangsters on drugs, mind you. It does not seem logical to disarm licensed firearm owners when they're not even a problem. But further research revealed that the vast majority of casualties admitted to the Red Cross Children's Hospital for that year were for falls. 2,338 cases came in for falls. And motor vehicle accidents, over 1,000. Burns, over 530. Assault with blunt or sharp instruments, over 200. Poisoning, 744. 
Dog bites, even, were more numerous than fire wounds. There were 50 fire wounds for that year, but there were 91 dog bite wounds. So vastly more children die each year from bicycle accidents and car accidents and drownings than from firearms. And children are far more likely to die from a car accident than from a firearm, vastly more in danger of vehicles than our firearms. So should we outlaw all motor vehicles? And the solution to the horrific carnage on the roads is not to ban motor vehicles, but to improve safety features in vehicles, to educate drivers, to promote the use of safety belts, to severely punish drunken drivers, reckless drivers, or texting while driving. As with motor vehicles, it would not be right to erode everybody's rights or to take away everyone's freedoms just because of the criminal activities and lawlessness of some. So what does the scripture say? Is it biblical to arm ourselves for self-defense? 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, worse than an infidel. So fathers and husbands are required by Almighty God to provide for their families. And this includes not only providing food and housing and clothing and education and medical care and love and discipleship and spiritual guidance, of course, but also protection of what worth are all these other provisions if one does not provide protection as well. Anyone who fails to provide for their family has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In fact, those who refuse to protect their young are worse than an animal. What animal will not fight to protect its offspring? God has endowed his creatures with claws and talons and horns and sharp teeth and stings and venom and swift wings and other means for fight or flight. Self-defense is built into nature. The underlying argument for gun control seems to be that the availability of weapons causes crime. But that has not been the biblical position. Genesis 4 records that the first murder occurred when Cain killed Abel. God's response was not to ban rocks or knives or clubs or, or whatever murder weapon may have been used, but to banish the murderer. It's interesting, the Bible doesn't even record what weapon was used. The weapon used was not relevant. It's the murderer's heart that is the problem, not the weapon used. So in Genesis 9, 5 to 6, God instituted capital punishment for murder. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for an image of God has he made man. That's Genesis 9, 5, 6, given immediately after the flood. It's a universal uh, for all generations decree by God. So this death penalty has been repeatedly restated throughout the scriptures, including the New Testament. But nowhere does the Bible advocate weapons control. The Bible does record the control of weapons by the Amalekites and the Philistines, Judges 5 and 1 Samuel 13, but it condemns those restrictions on individual defense as a pagan attempt to centralize excessive power. Our Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples, he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Luke 22, 36. The law of God is clear. If a thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. That's in the case laws of Exodus. Exodus 22, verse 2. It's easy to remember. Exodus 2, 2, verse 2. So the law of God establishes the basic rights of self-defense. If a thief is found breaking in, and he struck as he does, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. It's nighttime. You can't tell. There's somebody moving in your house. Uh, you can't tell if he's got a weapon. You don't know his intentions. You don't even know if he's a pedophile, a rapist, a murderer, whatever. And so even if a thief is, is killed at night, there's no guilt for his bloodshed because uh, you couldn't tell what his intentions were. He shouldn't be breaking to him anyway. 
how much more during the daylight is it right to defend against rapists, murderers, terrorists, and so on? Like those who burst into the St. James Church, machine gunning congregation, hurtling hand grenades amongst the, our people, as happened in 25 July 1993, which one of our missionaries responded to with some judicious use of force and wounded the terrorist who was spraying the congregation with machine gun fire at the front and caused them to break off the attack, saving many lives by his action. So plainly, we are meant to be those who are ready to defend the defenseless, to be able to make a stand to protect those who are under attack. So armed citizens save lives. Every day, countless crimes are prevented. Hundreds of potential victims are protected. Many tragedies are averted by armed citizens. Armed citizens save lives, but unarmed citizens all too often only become helpless victims. You would have thought recent history would have proved that, especially 20th century. Gun control legislation is unnecessary, it's unconstitutional, and it's counterproductive. It's every citizen's right and duty to be armed and prepared to defend the defenseless and, and to protect the innocent. As is reinforced in Magna Carta, the Dooms of King Alfred, the Laws of Canute, the English Bill of Rights, all the, the foundational legal documents that have built Western civilization entrenched the right and duty of self-defense. So in the day of crisis, may God make us fast and accurate. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, it's interesting. I witnessed a mugging uh, only earlier this year. I was um, uh, met my girlfriend off the bus, and there's a little sort of alleyway. It's not that narrow. It sort of widens out, and we're you know crossing the road towards it, and we hear all this screaming and stuff. So I sort of held them, you know, sort, you know, stood back a bit and sort of went round. So I kept the distance. And we just saw someone running and an elderly lady on the floor with her husband next to her. Uh, it turned out that I don't believe this guy was armed. I'm not sure. Um, obviously, the lady was choked. He was after her handbag, but she managed to keep hold of it. Uh, and consequently, there were some other bystanders who kindly called the police. Well, I and another gentleman who was a Christian, actually, and uh, asked if he could pray for her. And I joined him in prayer. Uh, we sat sat them down. There was um, some seats nearby we were able to get, and then um, that was that. But consequently, uh, Amanda and I won't go down that alleyway anymore. We'll we'd rather walk round. You see, um, mm. and I just give that as an example in a country where there are, um, you know, you can't have guns basically unless you have them illegally certainly handguns. You can have certain guns if you're a you know a farmer and you need to keep a a gun to um, stop a dog from attacking your sheep, you know, things like that. But I'm going to let you know the consequences. If people think that guns ownership is going to make their streets safer, have a listen to this article from The Sun, which is one of the most popular tabloid newspapers in the UK. This is from the 4th of December last year, 2021. Headline, Bloody Streets, Britain's Knife Epidemic Laid Bare as Cops Face 30 Blade Crimes a day across the country. I'm going to include a link to this in the post for our show. The chilling figures come as a 14-year-old boy appeared in court charged with stabbing a 12-year-old girl to death in Liverpool. Mm. 
The new stats reveal forces right across the UK are dealing with thousands of cases every year. London, the knife crime capital of Britain, recorded a huge 10,130 incidents last year, which is around 27 a day. OK, and so if you take guns off the people, the criminals are just going to resort to other weapons instead. And the good thing about a gun is it levels the playing field. If you're going to have a knife, you're going to certainly you're going to have to get up close, etc. with someone who could be a lot more um, fitter, stronger, younger than you. Uh, and you're not going to have much of an effect. But if you have a gun and you're trained in how to use it, it doesn't matter if you're an elderly lady and you're able to, to, to pull that to defend yourself, these people are going to be worried. Um, and this is what's so important about it. And this is why I feel that they're desperately after the guns because there's all sorts of memes uh, going around. You know, why did the government... Uh, I think I've got one. We we may use it today, we may not. Why do the government want to take your guns away? It's a sort of Charlie Brown one because they're about to do something to you that they know you would kill them for. <laughs> and when you look at the likes of uh, what's going on in, in Australia as a prime example of these, you know, goon police officers storming into people's houses about COVID restrictions and the way that people were treated on protests out there. And, you know, we hear that there was uh, claims that directed energy weapons were used against people. I don't know if you heard about that footage. And this is your own governments doing this to you. So there's a clear and obvious plan for governments around the world, particularly in the West, to target their own civilians. And I find it very... You know, isn't it a coincidence that the countries in which they're the most heavy-handed with their civilians are the countries that they've already disarmed? Peter, back to you for your comments. Oh, I mean, you are so right. Just like criminals prefer disarmed victims, uh, tyrants prefer disarmed citizens. And pacifism is in defiance of historic Christian teaching. So the Church of England is founded in 39 Articles, and you know, that's part of the prayer book. And the prayer book is endorsed by, uh, fully adopted by the Palace of Westminster, the House of Commons and the House of Lords combined. And in the 39 Articles, which is the foundation of the Church of England, and also constitutionally accepted uh, as law in Britain, Article 37 of the 39 Articles, it is lawful for Christian men to carry weapons. And this was produced at the time when firearms were already invented and were being carried around too. It is lawful for Christian men to carry weapons. And it was uh, in the Westminster Catechism spelled out even more. This includes both swords and firearms. The Westminster Catechism, considered the finest expression of biblical teaching, states under the sixth command that the prohibition against murder requires as our duty all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and the life of others by resisting, by just defense against violence, protecting and defending the innocent. So that's question 135 in the, in, under the sixth command, the Westminster Catechism. So both the 39 Articles and the Westminster Catechism, two of the finest definitions of Christian life, faith and behavior uh, you'll get anywhere in the world, and which are fully endorsed in, in Great Britain. These make it clear that uh, there's nothing innately wrong or sinful or uh, in any way unlawful for a Christian to carry weapons and to be engaged in all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the lives of ourselves and others. Uh, 
And so anything that can protect and defend against murder is good. Murder is bad. Therefore, stopping murder is excellent. And we found that the best deterrent against murder is actually being defended um, against with, with weapons by people who are trained to know how to use them. Take, for example, the first pioneer missionary of the modern missionary era, the father of modern missions, William Carey. His landmark book, An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen, published in 1792, the book that launched the modern missionary movement, listed as essential equipment, section five, first line, essential equipment, knives, powder, and shot. I mean, and William Carey carried uh, muskets and, and pistols and firearms to the field that was considered an essential part of his equipment, and nobody blinked an eyelid that there was something wrong with that back in the 1700s. Well, come to 1800s, 19th century, pioneer missionary and explorer Dr. David Livingston, who first landed in Africa in 1841. He was well equipped with some of the most advanced weapons then available in the world, including a six-barreled revolver and a double-barreled rifle. And on occasion, Dr. David Livingston was compelled to use his weapons for protection from wild animals and to persuade Islamic slave traders to set the captives free. So at one point, after Livingston's party had been compelled to shoot back at slave raiders, Livingston was criticized in Britain, to be predicted. He responded to criticism saying, I love peace as much as any mortal man. In fact, I go quite beyond you. If I love it so much, I would fight for it. And that's the point. You've got people who like to take the Bible verse, blessed are the peacemakers. But that's so, it's not blessed are the pacifists, it's blessed are the peacemakers. It takes effort, it takes action in many cases to make peace. Peace is not something that just happens mysteriously, magically. It takes action, and which is why Colt named one of the uh, 45 revolvers that were produced for the Wild West the peacemaker. And uh, that wasn't considered facetious, it was considered very practical at that time. Uh, although now we've got... Um, an abuse of this term by the UN who call their soldiers peacekeepers, which as somebody who's seen the UN at work in Namibia, in Angola, in the Congo, in Sudan, in Rwanda, I can tell you they don't make peace. They don't keep the peace. They go into a bad situation. The UN invariably makes a bad situation much, 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 much worse than it was beforehand. I've left out of all seen UN involved in, in Serbia and in Yugoslavia. So, um, everywhere I've seen them at work, they've done very badly. And while I didn't see them at work in Somalia, I've heard from people who were there, from Somalians themselves, uh, they made the situation catastrophically worse than it ever was before. I can't think of one situation where the UN has gone and, and actually made the situation overall better. Uh, they've always made a bad situation worse. So we shouldn't put our trust in governments. We shouldn't be putting our trust in the United Nations or the globalists, that's for sure. But we should be putting our trust in God. And just like David, the David, the shepherd boy who went into the valley of the shadow of death to confront Goliath, he he took the weapon he knew best, his sling, but he didn't put his faith in it. He said, you come with your shield, your spear, and your javelin. I come in the name of the Lord God of Israel, whom you have defied. And so uh, we, we must not ever put our faith in our weapons, but there's nothing wrong with using them. They're tools. They're cold, inanimate objects. There's nothing magical about a sword or a pistol or a revolver or a shotgun. Uh, they, they're just a tool. And a tool, a cold, metal, inanimate object, uh, cannot be blamed for the sin that's in the heart of man. And so 
missionaries who face dangers that we can hardly imagine. We shouldn't be too hasty to judge and condemn others for doing what the Bible commands us to do, which is to take reasonable precautions for self-defense and for the protection of our families. And of course, the primary weapons of any missionary or minister or Christian is the Bible, faith and prayer and persuasion, just as our primary spiritual food is the word of God. But that does not stop us planting seeds or harvesting crops or shopping or preparing food. We must be balanced. And uh, along this line, I've also had people saying, you know, why don't you just trust God? Well, I do trust God, like David, uh, and uh, uh, trust God, but he still took a sling and used it. And like Daniel, who um, obviously trusted in God and he wouldn't bow, but uh, uh, still he trusted in God even lines then. I've trusted God in doing missions in 38 countries and eight wars and uh, through three revolutions over 40 years. I've trusted God in prison. I've trusted God when put in front of a firing squad. But that doesn't mean that I haven't taken all training and uh, lawful preparations so that I'm able to defend myself and my family whenever I can. And that's the point. We don't put our faith in our weapons, but there's nothing wrong with taking your weapons and using them in order to protect yourself. When people say, well, uh, why don't you trust God? Well, then Maybe you shouldn't wear your seatbelt or a helmet when you're riding a motorbike. And why do you have insurance? And why do you lock your door at night? And why do you have locks on uh, anything? And you could, uh, there's nothing wrong with common sense and reasonable precautions. In fact, God expects us to do it because even as we pray, give us this day our daily bread, it doesn't mean you sit at home and do nothing. You're still meant to work, and the farmer's still meant to plow and sow seed and uh, irrigate and harvest. Uh, we are not meant to use our faith or prayer as an excuse to justify laziness and disobedience. And throughout the Bible, we see many great men of God, including King David and many others who wrote the Psalms, for example, uh, who trusted God, worshipped God, but they also were soldiers or they used weapons for defense. You can even go back to Abraham, the father of the faithful. He had his servants so well trained and prepared that they could go take on five kings and rescue his nephew and his family from these five kings around Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, uh, this is already in Genesis 14, first war recorded in the Bible. And it was carried out by Abraham, the father of faithful. We, we need to be biblical. We need to accept the whole Bible. And we shouldn't trust politicians who obviously despise God and violate his laws, who are trying to tell us, don't worry about what the Bible teaches. Don't worry about what Magna Carta and the English Bill of Rights says. And don't worry about all of these facts and history and uh, the death by government documentation and uh, the Black Book of Commerce. Don't worry about any of that. Trust us. Trust the government. We know what's best for you. And that is foolishness. We should not be trusting in wicked, sinful men who are in rebellion to God. We should be trusting God and his word, which means we should be applying biblical principles like these to every area of life. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, it, it, another point, I, I think what's so important is if you can, you know, relate the Bible to personal experiences and what you just said there, so important because I, and I believe these come into my mind because of uh, what the way you're expressing the, the, the words of the Bible and, and it's sort of how do I relate to that and I hope many of the people listening will have their own um, examples of experiences that they've had that they can relate to what you said. I was leaving my uh, a job, oh, it's going to be over five, six years ago now, because I've been doing this for six years, um, and 
there's a road that I was crossing and the buses come out from another road and I hadn't seen it. And when they come round, it wouldn't have hit you full on. But as they come round the corner, I was walking into the road and the side of it would have just taken me out. And just by chance, I was with another friend who I work with that I never recall leaving work with before or since. Um, and basically, he just grabbed me, you know, out the way. And I was being careless, but I was unaware um, and I believe that that situation, you know, there was an ele- there was God's involvement in my friend being there and being in the right place to help me at that time. Because as I say, we've never left and walked that way before or since. It wasn't like a regular thing. And I've been there several years. But at the same time, if I deliberately walked in front of a bus, I don't believe God would stop the bus or suddenly magically lift me out of the way to protect me because I'm deliberately doing something. And so I think that that's a very important thing as well. There are some people out there that, oh, God will will save me no matter what. Well, you're expected to keep your own side of the bargain and not, you know, what I did, I was careless. It was unintentional and uh, you could argue I was reckless and uh, it could have turned out very nasty. But if you're deliberately being, you know, reckless, in, in a way of sort of, st- you know, deliberately walking in front of a bus or what have you. I don't believe that God will intervene there. What are your thoughts? No, quite right. Uh, we we should not be uh, foolish or lazy um, in order to put onto God what we can do ourselves. We should trust God for what we cannot. We should do everything within our power to fulfill our obligations and then trust God for what we cannot. So just take, for example... Ronald Reagan, when he's president of the United States and uh, Pope John Paul II, um, back in 1981, they both had the best security money could buy the highest level of security on the planet. Yet they both got shot in 1981. Ronald Reagan, Washington, D.C., and, and Pope John Paul at the Vatican itself. And uh, and they both survived. So uh, this teaches a whole lot of things. You You can take all the precautions you like, but at the end of the day, some things are in God's hands, but what we have to do is do everything that we can and trust God for everything that is outside of our power, what we cannot. And so I do not have the right to trust God to go and um, sow the seed and uh, plow the fields and irrigate the crops while I lie in bed or, or sit on the couch and watch TV. Um, I, I can, if I've done everything I can, I can then trust God for everything I cannot. So if I'm a farmer and I've I've done everything I can to prepare the ground, to sow the seed, to fertilize the ground, to be able to provide the irrigation. Uh, then I can trust God for what's out of my control, the weather, for rain in good season and, and the, amount, uh, the right amount of it and so on. And then I've got to do the work of the, of the harvesting. And someone else has to do the work of transporting and then someone else has to be doing the baking. So you see, we can trust God for what's out of our control, but we have no right to ask God to do what is within our power to do ourselves. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yes, extremely well clarified and stated. Uh, We have a duty here, folks. And as we talked about last week, uh, a theocracy would solve the problems of the world. If we just followed, we don't need men writing laws. The laws are in the Bible. Peter quoted some of them today. That is our law book it's it's everything you need is in there for a safe secure and happy society 
Um, unfortunately, these have been usurped by people who want to control what you say, who, who clearly demonstrate time and time again they want harm for you, especially Indigenous people of the West. For some reason, they have a deep-seated hatred of you and they want to target you at any opportunity. So with that being said, Peter, any closing comments? And please let the audience know how, where they can find your work and how they can contact you. Thank you. Yes, Andrew. The problem is not guns. It's not firearms. It's not swords or metal objects. The problem is hearts without God, homes without discipline, schools without prayer, courtrooms without justice. I mean, let's let's redirect the discussions back onto what really matters. And um, I've written uh, a number of books on this, uh, obviously having been through eight wars and uh, lived through three revolutions. I've, I've developed some strong opinions about these and I've documented in books like In the Killing Fields of Mozambique, Faith and Defiance Today and Holocaust and Under the Consequences of Governments That Are Out of Control Murdering Their People. And I've written Solutions, um, Frontline behind enemy lines for Christ, which is 40-year history, and uh, the Security and Survival Handbook, where I've packed in a lot of what I've learned on what can save lives, protect churches. It tackles everything from Switzerland's strategy for survival uh, through armed uh, preparedness uh, through to the St. James Mask and uh, practical case studies such as the um, home invasion that my brother faced uh, and I've written books like The Ten Commands, uh, God's Perfect Law of Liberty, The Biblical Principles of Africa. These are, are uh, tools that I think can help us in countering the gun control, gun confiscation lobby. If people want to communicate with me directly, my email is peter at frontline.org.za, or as Americans say, ZA. So peter at frontline.org.za, and our website is www.frontlinemissionsa.org. Frontlinemissionsa.org. You'll find audios, videos, links to the different books, such as Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ and the Security and Survival Handbook, which can be helpful. And uh, please, uh, you, you can also find us on, on social media, Frontline Fellowship, or myself, Peter Hammond. And um, we would be glad to hear from anyone who's interested. But may God make us fast and accurate when the day comes, because... As the scripture uh, makes clear that if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5, 8. Well, we don't want to be in that category. We want to be those like uh, David, who are armed, uh, who are prepared. Um, we may only have a sling. We don't put our faith in it, but we put all our faith in God. You come in the name of, with your shield, your spear and your javelin. I come in the name of the Lord God of hosts whom you have defied. And that needs to be attitude. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. Uh, fascinating presentation, as always. So, folks, Peter and I will be back with you again at the same time next Thursday. You have been listening to the real story of gun control and the threat of freedom. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening, and bye for now.